Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Jaya. Jaya is an award-winning somatic sexologist, international speaker, best-selling author, and creator of the Erotic Blueprint Breakthrough. For over a decade, Jaya has been the leading presenter at Tony Robbins' Platinum Events, speaking on all things sex and relationships. She is also known for her starring role on the popular Netflix docuseries, Sex, Love, and Goop, where she joins Gwyneth Paltrow and a team of experts to help couples enhance their relationships through more pleasurable sex and deeper intimacy. Okay, just as an FYI, this episode contains candid discussions around the topic of sex and sexual intimacy. And if that is potentially triggering for you, then this episode may not be for you. Of course, one of Jaya's primary missions in her work is to destigmatize sex and normalize honest conversations about it. In short, sex is not something we should be ashamed of, and it's only when we shroud it in secrecy that it becomes something lurid and taboo. In our conversation, Jaya and I discuss the nature of pleasure and how and why we seek it. We unpack our strange, polarized cultural view of sex that is simultaneously puritanical and libertine. Jaya guides us through her erotic blueprint and breaks down the five erotic blueprint types, including mine. We explore the nuanced, sensual, and energetic dimensions of sex, including Tantra. And we talk about the relationship between religion and sex, including asceticism, the exaltation of the Virgin Mother, and some of the wilder, unexpected stories from the Buddhist canon. Now, before jumping into the conversation, I want to remind you that if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And if you're looking for a way to support our work here at Commune, the best way is to subscribe to our course platform. You'll access more than 100 courses 
featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders across meditation, yoga, personal development, integrative medicine, and social impact. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Wow, this was a fun and vibrant conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. So without further delay, I present to you, Jaya. Jaya, great to be stepping into the river with you. Mm, I love stepping in the river. <laughs> yeah. I want to share with you just a humorous story um, before we get going or as we get going. So in doing research uh, for this interview, I obviously watched the Netflix show in which you co-star with Gwyneth Paltrow called Sex, Love & Goop. And about five minutes through the first episode my jaw just drops because there's my house <laughs> and the backdrop for the first episode was Whoa. shot at my house <laughs> um, at our commune Topanga yoga studio. In fact, I'm looking in the background. I'm like, there's my yoga mat. <laughs> wow. no, it, it, it wasn't the couple that you were counseling. It was a uh, I think Rama and, and Felicitas, which was another couple, mm. um, but it was very uh, serendipitous and I, I got a big kick out of it. Um, so fun. Yeah, it's really fun. Okay, so you are um, a sexologist and I will say the first sexologist I've uh, ever had on the podcast. Yay, um, I love being your first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My wife said that to me once. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, that's actually a whole other discussion. But um, on the surface, this sounds just like the best job anyone could ever have. But um, maybe you could unpack uh, just the vocation itself. I mean, what is a sexologist? What do you do? So I'm technically a somatic sexologist, which is a little different than somebody who's just a sexologist. And a sexologist is someone who is really interested in sexuality. Like I've devoted most of my life to studying sexuality, learning about it so that I can help other people. The somatic aspect of it is that it's more body-based than mm -hmm. just say, like if you go to see a sex therapist, which is different because it's sex therapy, um, you're just gonna, you're gonna talk about sex. You're gonna look at sex from that angle of the psyche-emotional aspect. As a somatic sexologist, I'm looking at it from a lens of what's happening actually in the body. To me, sex is something that happens in the body. It's something that we use the body as a tool to have better sex. We can also use the emotions. So it's not just the emotional aspect. It's looking at the body, looking at the psyche and the emotional aspects, the spiritual aspects of sexuality. It's a holistic picture of it. And then how that holistic picture can either optimize your sexual health, longevity, wellness, pleasure, or maybe it's a block. It, maybe it's something that is not serving you in your sexual life. So in the last few decades, I've really just dove into what is erotically possible. And I think that that's part of being a sexologist is having a curiosity about what is this thing 
that is our sexuality? Who are we as sexual beings? How do we relate to each other as sexual beings? What is possible when it comes to this body that we are in? Mm. You said a couple things there that I really want to pull on. First of all, you talked about sexuality and well-being. Now, oftentimes when people kind of put together their bullet points as, you know, the essential components of well-being, it's like, you know, nutrition, restoration, movement, community, purpose, rarely does sexuality get mentioned within that overall equation. But you put it right in there, right? Of course. Yeah. For, for me, the sexuality is part of who we are as human beings. And there's been many studies that show that when we have our sexual health and wellness in line, then we have other aspects of our health and wellness. For example, heart challenges, maybe erectile challenges, may be linked to a heart challenge or our immune system being boosted by our sex hormones. How is all of that linked together? And that inquiry of what makes us well and whole as humanity. Yeah, so interesting that you bring that up because in, in doing some research, you know, I've been hearing so much about erectile dysfunction, for example. And I'm like, what is the root cause of erectile dysfunction? I'm super into physical mechanism and I interview a ton of doctors. So I'm like, what's behind this? You know, is it testosterone? Is it blood flow? Is it, um, you know, that we don't, um, I mean, testosterone, for example, is the antecedent to testosterone is actually cholesterol. And so many people are on statins. Right. So I'm like, hmm, is like, is that why the the Viagra commercial is right after the Lipitor commercial? <laughs> like, you know, um, I'm like, you know, coming up with all these hypotheses. But what I found, which was interesting, is that it's sometimes it's a um, byproduct of, of other pharmaceuticals that people are taking. Um, but like, as you say, it's like, it, it seems to be like a blood flow issue. So if you have atherosclerosis or coronary artery disease or heart disease, you have a greater chance of having erectile dysfunction. I thought that was fascinating. And that a lot of people don't report the erectile dysfunction to a doctor, nor is it put together that, oh, if there's erectile dysfunction, there may be a bigger challenge with our, with our overall health. And, and because we're ashamed to talk about these things, we're afraid to look at them, or sometimes our own medical professionals, you know, they blush and they get uncomfortable talking about the, the topics as well. And so it, it gets to be this thing that is hard for us to talk about. And I look at, I always look at four things when anybody's coming to me with anything, be it premature ejaculation or libido challenges or, you know, any kind of sexual health issue is looking at, at four different things. One is what's happening physically with the physical body. Is there a pelvic floor trauma? You know, there's weak muscles if we took erectile dysfunction, you know, and we look at, is the blood able to get through into the body or do we have damaged blood vessels from something that the person is doing in their lifestyle? Um, so we're looking at that. Then we're looking at the psyche emotional aspect. Is it that you get an erection when you're by yourself, but when you're with your partner, it's more challenging to get an erection because there's performance anxiety or something happening on the psyche emotional level. Is it biochemical? You mentioned testosterone, you know, are there medications or are there things that are affecting blood flow in the body? 
and or, and or is it energetic? And that's the final one is like what's happening in the bioenergy, what's happening in the bio field um, with with some people who are more sensitive to that. And is that then throwing the system off in some way? And how are all those interconnected? Mm-hmm. And and so I'm I'm looking at all of that whole picture. And I think, again, that initial question of what is a sexologist, it's that I am looking at that whole picture, um, not just one aspect. Yeah, you're almost describing yourself as a as taking a functional medicine approach to sex and to um, and to uh, the way that you interact with the people that you coach and counsel. Mm-hmm. So you're always you're looking at upstream at you know what are the different potential root causes of this particular symptom. Exactly, and I think that's amazing. Exactly. And, and then how do we utilize sexuality to optimize the entire system and pleasure in our body? You know, our sex hormones being our youth hormones. How do we keep when, when I was very early learning sexuality, I was very into Tantra and some of the more uh, psycho spiritual aspects of sexuality. And in that they taught that when you do these practices, when you're using your breath and sound and movement and sexual energy to move through your whole body, you're vitalizing your system. And there was a link to the hormones and what's happening to the brain chemistry with all of these different practices. And we see some of this in yoga, you know, we're looking at yogic sexuality, but we see some of this in yoga practice or meditation practice or mindfulness, that there is a well-being that's created from that. And I think the same thing with sexuality. Yeah. The- there's so many aspects to explore here because there's the whole sort of neurotransmitter neuromodulator side of like dopamine and adrenaline and then how do you balance yeah yeah, and then how do you balance that with a more um with more of an oxytocin or serotonin parasympathetic Mm -hmm. thing to find balance and actually this leads me into a question that i was thinking about i think in the middle of the night about the nature of pleasure because being destigmatizing pleasure seems to be one of the components that's central to your work. So, mm-hmm. and the word pleasure actually carries a lot of different connotations. Um, so it can be associated with like unbridled hedonism. Like right. you know, we often think of pleasures of the flesh being decadent and wild, um, but it it can also mean sort of contentedness mm-hmm. and there's a greek um term uh that's used in epicureanism called aponia which is like a freedom from pain mm-hmm. and i suppose like pleasure could even be used as a verb um so i wonder if you could unpack the definition of pleasure mm-hmm. well we have a core brand value in our company called pleasure first and it's to me, pleasure is the fuel and vitality and aliveness. And so if we look at just life, like life force, pleasure is feeding and fueling our life force. Mm. And, and so if you are running on an empty tank, if you're not doing self-care, if you have, you know, we, we're workaholics. I almost think of pleasure or play or rest as a shadow in our culture, especially in the United States. It's <laughs> yeah. like work hard, run yourself. And so there's an invitation when we put pleasure first to what do you need in this moment to fuel yourself? Hmm. Can life be more pleasurable? 
one of um, our coaches, his name is Christian. He teaches, he asks these three questions that I love them, which is, can it be easier? Can it be pleasure, more pleasurable? And can it be more aligned with your breath? Easier, mm-hmm. more pleasurable, and more aligned with your breath. And I think that's a way to live a lifestyle. Just asking yourself these questions of what right now would bring me pleasure. And I invite the listeners right now in this moment to put pleasure first by just asking, how could this moment right now be more pleasurable? Is it shifting in your seat? Is it relaxing your jaw? Is it adding more breath to this moment? Is it some touch somewhere? Is it feeling your clothing or becoming more mindful of how your muscular tension is or your hair falling on your shoulders? Is it when you take a shower in the morning, taking a little extra time to shampoo, you know, like like a Mm. massage or scalp? It's these little things throughout life that are important that then are putting fuel into your vitality box, into your aliveness box. I say that I don't teach sexuality. I actually teach people aliveness. This Mm. is your aliveness. Pleasure is the fuel for your aliveness. Yeah, that's a, that's beautiful. I would also add the word awareness um, to I think you know at least what I'm feeling when I'm I'm listening to you is um, so for example when you talked about that one cue of is it aligned with my breath? Well, I think so often we're just sprinting through life and we're just not very aware or conscious or mindful of things like breath. Maybe we're taking these nippy little short breaths and we're not even actually aware that we're doing that. Mm-hmm. But but somewhere it's causing some level of agitation, of anxiety, of nerving of nervousness. You know, maybe you're a little snippy with people or grumpy. And I think about that, you know, across other areas too. Like I've become extremely aware and mindful of what I eat now. Mm-hmm. And when you take that time to really refine that, you start to notice these tiny little subtle nuances that can be just like these t- things that you would have completely overlooked. Yes. And now there are these like miracles. Yes. <laughs> um, and then and the pleasure front, it's like you become aware of sensation. Mm-hmm. Where you're meeting sensation and where you, I like, I don't like the term pleasure seeker because it's like we're seeking something all the time. It's like, can you find pleasure in your body? What is it that you're finding as you bring awareness? And I, and I say, if I can, if I could teach one tool to anybody out there to make their sexual lives more fulfilling, it is awareness. Just mm-hmm. become more aware of what's happening in your pelvic floor, in your breath, in your neck, in your jaw. What what about your lover's lips meeting yours? How much awareness can you can you just hold that? I I have this thing seven second kisses. John Gottman talked about six second kisses because it produces the oxytocin. But I was like, let's just add a extra second, (laughs) extra. But how much can you be aware of just in in the touching of your lover's lips, their breath on yours, the the tingling sensations, the wetness. What are those things that you can bring then into the erotic experience where just a seven second kiss becomes the most delicious part of your day? Mm 
Hey, it's Jeff. And as an athlete, I've been told my entire life to make sure that I get enough electrolytes. But it's only recently that I have truly understood what electrolytes are and the many essential physiological functions that they fulfill. Okay, so you ready for Electrolytes 101? Here we go. When essential minerals like sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium dissolve in a fluid, they form electrolytes, positive or negative ions needed to maintain vital bodily functions. For example, sodium ions are used by the brain to send electrical signals, hello electrolytes, through your neurons in order to communicate with other neurons and the cells throughout your body. So electrolytes are key for brain health. Sodium also retains water and maintains proper hydration levels and fluid balance in your cells through a process called osmosis. Now calcium and potassium are needed for muscle contraction. They facilitate muscle fibers to slide together and move over each other as the muscle shortens and contracts. And magnesium is also required in this process so that the muscle fibers can relax after contraction. Now, magnesium is a total other beast. It plays a role in protein synthesis, sleep, and blood sugar balance, and hundreds of other functions. Now, it's for all these reasons and more that I add Element to my water. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And guess what? No sugar. Element is sweetened with stevia, a plant-based sugar substitute that won't spike glucose levels. A 20-ounce serving of many popular sports drinks that I'm sure you know can contain 36 grams of sugar. It's absurd that those products are marketed as healthy when they contain almost as much sugar as a soda. Many listeners know that I still play competitive tennis. Now, before I started using Element, I was prone to fatigue and cramping during long matches due to the loss of sodium. No longer. I'm right there moving like a panther at the end of a grueling three-set match. So right now, Element is offering Commune listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com commune. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T, drinkelement.com slash commune. Element offers no questions around refunds, so try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a friend and they will give you your money back. No questions asked. You've got nothing to lose. So go to drinkelement.com slash commune. So I am an intermittent faster, so I'm... Me too. I, okay, great, great. So I consolidate all of my consumption of food into eight hours. And um, I will say that since I've started doing that, the um, appreciation that I have for that first bite of food of the day 
is is that seven second kiss you know what i used to might not even think about or just sort of throw away like open the fridge and just pick anything out and stuff it into my mouth you know that when i i'm having more sacred relationship Mm -hmm. with the little things and, and that's, that's pleasure. Like now yes. you're eating your food in pleasure instead of in, a, in an unconscious. It's just a need that I'm fulfilling. Hunger is just a need that I'm fulfilling as right. opposed to now I'm creating an experience for myself of pleasure in this world. Mm. So you said something about doctors, you know, getting all um, blustery and flushed and not being able to uh, kind of openly address some of these issues um, with their patients. And, you know, I, I know that one of the things that you're so committed to is tearing down stigma and the shame that is associated associated um, with sex and with talking about sex. And, you know, we we have this very strange and confusing cultural attitude towards sex right now in this in this time, mm -hmm. um, like on one level, we're repressed and we can't talk about it at all. And then on this other level, we're hypersexualized. Right. There's like no knee length dress. It's always, it's either ankle length or above the thigh. We're like simultaneously Puritan and libertine. So <laughs> how do you explain that schizophrenia and does one extreme beget the other? And how do we move towards a more healthy cultural discussion? Mm -hmm. Wonderful question. I think we are in a time of polarization in many things <laughs> yes. where we just as a cult, as a culture, we've moved into very polarizing ideas and into polarizing conversations. And I am curious about how do we bridge these polarizing views? And I think underneath it, it's what is it that we all want, need, and desire underneath sexuality, underneath any polarizing idea? And, and in that, when we come to look at what is it that we all want, need, desire as a human race, we can come into unity because we see that the way we're going about it is not the way. <laughs> so, yeah. so what I mean by this, let me give you a, a good example. It's like, we have the extreme of puritanism in sexuality, and then we have the extreme of debauchery or hedonism, we may say, in or we could look at it in Buddhism, right? There's a right-handed path versus the left-handed path. We so we and Buddha taught the middle, the middle way. And so what is it underneath that we want? Well, we have the procreation of our species, which is part of, you know, we need to have sex in order to survive as a species. So I say sex is a need. It's not just a want desire. It's actually something we need to stay alive and, and to have more of us and, and continue. And there's love and connection. Every single person on this planet wants love and connection. That's a unifier right there. We come into unity because we all want need and desire love and connection. Now, what kind of sex has us feel love and connection? What kind of sex helps us with the procreation of our species? What, what else do we want in sexuality? Maybe for some of us, it's ecstatic states of consciousness. It's remembering who we are. 
you know, when when we go into the psycho-spiritual aspects of sexuality, uh, I deeply believe this is my own part of my own practice is sex is a unifier. It unifies energies and can help us remember who we are when we're practicing at its, uh, at its greatest potential of sexuality. Not that there's anything wrong with any of the other kinds of sex. It's just that there are certain sex that can help us remember who we are through the ecstatic experience. And I think there's a seeking if it's conscious or not in all beings for that there's a seeking to know who who am i on this planet and and a seeking to merge and to unify the separations that we have and so if underneath that we come to those three things and we look at that as a unifier then we find a different path in sexuality and that path is a path of conscious sexuality that path is a path of consent-based sexuality. That path is a path of no more shame in sexuality. I think we get the polarization because of all the shame. We're not allowed to talk about it. We're not, you know, we're, we have shamed this thing that is, that is why we're here. And in shaming (laughs) sexuality, we shame all of humanity and why we're here. Yeah. I said a lot. (laughs) That was, yeah, that was brilliant. Um, Brings up so much for me because you know, just the language that you use around union or yoga or finding essentially Madhyamaka, the middle path mm-hmm. between hedonism and asceticism, for example, um, that we, that our nature is, or one might argue the logos, the foundational intelligence of nature is to bring polarities into a sensitive kind of balance or coherence or consciousness. Absolutely. And that we are living in this place of duality. And, you know, I'm not going to use this particular episode to (laughs) excoriate Abrahamic religions too much, though I might go there a little bit. But there has been, you know, within a lot of Abrahamic traditions, at least, this very, this prescribed duality mm-hmm. between spirit and body right that you know the body is of the earth it's ephemeral it's base it will return to the earth and we need to supplement it uh, sublimate it to reach up into our eternal soul and of okay. course this misses the whole point right um of what you know you just outlined which is this union, this bringing together of opposites is the source of life. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And when when we do that, when we have this unification of body, spirit, you know, like there's no, at least for me in my journey, there's no more seeking to escape what I'm experiencing in this moment. And everything Mm. becomes pleasurable. And that's been part of my practice is can everything become orgasmic because I'm no longer running from some experience because I'm not okay with my body or I'm not, I I need to get somewhere else than where I actually am. And so once I unify those dualities, the place that I am, I am. Yes. Yeah. It's funny. I've never thought about sex in the same um, within the same parentheses as mindfulness in this way, but non sort of sacred, non judgmental presence. 
mm-hmm. to to actually be in that state of utter presence um, is uh, well. Of course, this is you know why we have all these practices, but yes. um, yeah. And I see uh, sexuality as a practice. It is my yeah. practice. It has been my practice every day, every moment. It's 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 not a separation of now I'm having sex with someone. And that comes down to the definition of sex, right? We can define it as this small thing of uh, intercourse. I put slot A into slot B and then we do the thing until we have the orgasm. Great. Um, that That's a very limited definition of sexuality. And... I invite everyone into an expanded idea of utilizing sexuality as a tool for more presence, for more mindfulness, for health, for longevity, for well-being mm. as part of a human experience. Mm, I love that. Yeah, just thinking about sex not necessarily as penetrative, but as in within the context of connection or playfulness or intimacy or mm-hmm. even subtlety recognizing the patterns of energy in your own body mm-hmm. um the yeah. sun makes love to the earth every day yeah <laughs> you know, like this is the way that i experience life is that everything is making love like we're all making love and and you know maybe i'm just a lover in this lifetime you know <laughs> like but but i see it almost there's a poetry about life there's a beautiful opportunity to view life as a divine lovemaking yeah and um you know we've upheld this myth for millennia now of of the of the immaculate conception for example mm-hmm. um a, as if to kind of exalt virginity uh in the form of the virgin mother um and you know we've done this with some some you know significant downside <laughs> um because in in doing that what we're we're creating a culture of shame that is attached to a self-perception that one is living in sin if just by being born yeah (laughs) (laughs) just by being born right (laughs) right um in fact it's it's sometimes i think about this it's funny we we have a completely implicit understanding of what living in sin means It, it you know, it certainly doesn't mean plundering the earth's resources or engaging in unilateral war or, you know, enslaving people. It actually means, quote unquote, um, you know, untraditional sexual behavior mm-hmm. or non-normative sexual behavior. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, you know, being able to kind of tear down some of that edifice would would really help our overall well-being. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's interesting, just if you look to it, just marginalization of humans on our planet, just what you're talking about, you know, it's, I always look at, well, what's ethical and then what's being practiced? And is, you know, like, if we look at any marginalized culture, oftentimes their sexual practices, spiritual practices, and music are demonized. 
Hmm. And, and so there's this demonization and of this life force of this expression. And there's this norm then that gets created and anything that deviates from that norm then is shameful, bad, wrong, because that norm has been established. And I challenge all of us to be more expressive within the way that it's safe, because sometimes it isn't safe to express our sexuality. But I've worked with thousands of people over the Mm -hmm. decades I've been doing this work. There is no norm. There is no, this is the way your sexuality is supposed to look. This is the way your turn on is supposed to look. This is the way your face is supposed to look when you're making an orgasm. (laughs) It's it's like, there is no norm. There is you and how your sexuality expresses. And within that, then you you get to dance within the ethical boundaries of the culture and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, they're like anything goes. For most people, they have a lot of shame around something that is a minor thing, but it becomes such a big thing because we have these norms and these repressions, especially of marginalized communities, gender orientation, and belief systems. Mm, yeah. And, you know, we were raised in some traditions to have a lot of fear. Um, Absolutely. You'll get killed for this. You'll get hung for this. You'll get burned in the stake for this, especially (laughs) if you're in a certain kind of body, you know, women historically. Yeah. Well, there is a dusty old scroll (laughs) and I can't say that I'm an old Testament scholar, but I've certainly read parts of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and they're essentially it reads like a sexual regulatory manual. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, there is a tremendous amount of condoned stonings at the city gates uh, for things like, um, you know, not being married if you, um, you know, if you weren't a virgin or homosexuality. And then how they decided like, you were a virgin, you know, like a hymen can break in many gazillions of ways before you ever have intercourse, you know? Yeah, Yeah. that's right. So, yeah, you know, I think to the degree that we can get over this notion that, you know, God as uh, sitting in some um, judgmental, yeah, cosmic (laughs) panopticon with a moral abacus kind of like measuring our transgressions as we go um i think we'll be a lot healthier and happier hey it's jeff now i always heard vitamin supplements are a waste of money as they just pass through your system expensive pee right well now i understand why and the reasons it's so hard to absorb large doses of certain nutrients through the pills, powders, and gummies at the store. Now, when you take these supplements or even consume foods, your digestive system must extract vitamins and minerals and, depending on the nutrient, convert them to a form your body can use. Now, some nutrients depend on proteins to transport them into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Now, often these supplements contain such large quantities 
that your body doesn't have enough resources, like transporter proteins, to absorb the nutrients. Since your body can't store water-soluble vitamins like C and the B family, as well as minerals like magnesium, zinc, and selenium, they wind up excreted and never reaching the cells where they are needed to support your immune system, metabolism, nervous system, and so much more. Now, I didn't know all of this when I started taking Livon Labs Lipospheric Vitamin C. I just know that if Skylar was giving them to me, they must be good. Well, it turns out that Livon Labs understands the difficulty of high-dose nutrient absorption, and they became the first dietary supplement company to use liposomal encapsulation technology to enhance nutrient absorption. Now, liposomes are double-layered spheres that Live On Labs uses to surround, protect, and transport water-soluble vitamins and minerals into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Liposomes are made of essential phospholipids, the same material that makes up your cells, so they easily pass into the cells and deliver the nutrients, staying behind to fortify the cell membrane. Now, the Live On Labs liposome encapsulated supplement line includes vitamin C, a B vitamin complex that contains pre-methylated folate, a magnesium specifically formulated for the brain, and the master antioxidant glutathione. And guess what? Only the ingredients necessary for maximum absorption. That means no sugar and no fillers, no colors, no artificial flavors. If you don't want to know what that tastes like, and trust me, you probably don't, make sure to follow the instructions on the package. Uh, right now, Live On Labs is offering commune listeners free sample two-packs of all their liposome encapsulated supplements with any purchase. This is a great way to try all six of their powerful supplements and get accustomed to their weird, unique, goo-like consistency. Just get yours at liveonlabs.com commune. This offer is only available through my link. You must go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Live on Labs has a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So you have nothing to lose. Go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. So, you know, for people that are really new to this work um, that perhaps haven't um, been fortunate enough to be, uh, you know, to be able to explore their own sexuality or their own um, kind of understand kind of who they are in this way. I know that it, you're the creator of a particular kind of blueprint called the erotic blueprint, which is at its kind of most superficial level, just a quiz that you can take online. And I took it yesterday. It was very fun. What were you? Uh, um, let's see. I, I wrote it down. I, have to, uh, I was an energetic type. Awesome. So we can kind of break, <laughs> um, we can break down kind of um, what that actually means. Um, but essentially anyone can at least get a take, can put their sort of toe in the water by taking um, this quiz online um, to get your sexual blueprint type. 
uh, which reveals some of your superpowers and some of your shadows. So can you explain how you developed the erotic blueprint and how it works? Yeah, for many years being a somatic sexologist, I have had the opportunity of working with people with their arousal. And I started to notice over it was a, over a decade of working with people just that there were certain people who were turned on by different things. So I could do one thing on one body and it wouldn't respond, but then I'd do something else on another body and it would respond completely differently. And so it just came over many years of clinical practice in bodies in working with people's bodies of how do they respond and what are they responding to? And one day I just had an aha. It was really influenced by Jack Morin's book. He wrote a book uh, called The Erotic Mind. And I also uh, mentored with him a little bit in the sexological bodywork training that I did with Joseph Kramer. And um, Jack talks about core erotic themes. And I was obsessed with the Enneagram and personality types and Myers-Briggs and just all of those different kind of typing systems. I thought nobody's really made a personality typing system for sexuality. And it just all started to click. It was one of those days I was actually in Topanga Canyon uh, working with somebody. And I was there and, and his eyes got really big and I wasn't even touching, you know, I wasn't even touching the body as I was coaching his wife. We had our hands like hovering over his body and he was just like started moving on the table and all these things started happening with his body. And He's like, what's happening? And I just said, you're energetic. Like you're wired. Your body is wired to be aroused by things that are not about touching. It's more about the yearning and the longing and the anticipation of being touched and space and tease. And that was the birthplace right there. That moment was the sort of download, you could say, of a lot of different things that came together in one moment. And hence the blueprints were born. Hmm. So can you break down the five primary blueprint types? Absolutely. So the, the five blueprint types, the first one's energetic. We've been talking about what you are, and that's the person who's turned on by space, tease, anticipation, longing, yearning. Um, it's, it's the space in between is where the arousal is, and the stillness and the awareness is where the arousal is. The shadow aspect of the energetic is if it's too much, too quick, too fast, you'll short circuit. So if your partner's always going for your genitals and you know doing all the things, you're not necessarily turned on by all of that. And so it's in finding the still, the spiritual aspects, the meditative aspects, the slowness, that is going to be where more of the superpower is, which is the superpower of the energetic is you can have orgasms without even needing to be touched. It can just be like, I had an awareness in my mind of the energy flow between the two of us or that attraction between the two of us or in a meditation where I could start to have just so much pleasure from meditating that all of a sudden I'm in, I'm in an orgasmic state. I don't necessarily want to have physical sex after, after my meditation because I'm, I'm blissed out, you know, so that's, that's part of the energetic. The sensual is the next one. And the sensual is someone who's turned on by all of their senses being ignited. So smells, taste, sounds, music, slow dancing. These are some of the things that really feed a sensual. In the shadow aspect of the sensual, 
you get caught up in your head and it gets hard to stay in your body. So you're thinking about the laundry that needed to be done or the person who you needed to call back or as everything okay down there in my nether regions or do I smell and taste, you know, okay. And so you're thinking those thoughts instead of being able to really focus on what's happening in the body. The superpower, however, is you bring beauty and sensuality and so much yummy to the sexual experience. This is the person who's going to create the playlist and have strawberries and candles. And, you know, they're, they're bringing all this gorgeousness and romance and context richness to the erotic experience. The next one is the sexual and the sexual is someone turned on by what we think of as sex in our culture, nudity, orgasms, genitals, penetration. These are the things that the sexual enjoys. Their shadow side, however, is it's a limited definition of sexuality. So uh, I'll often hear from sexuals, yeah, but we're having orgasms. What's wrong? You know, it's like the orgasm isn't necessarily the thing that feeds other people, you know, and and it's a certain kind of orgasm that the sexual is talking about, usually ejaculatory orgasms or clitoral orgasms. And so um, the sexual can get trapped in missing the journey and all of the other flavors and beautiful things that are part of the sexual experience. In their superpower, however, sex is simple. It doesn't mean it lacks depth. It just means it's simple. It's like, okay, we do this, we, and then, then we have an orgasm and it's all good. Like, what, what's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong with everybody else? You know, kind of a way of thinking. And they can go from zero to 60. So arousal can usually be pretty easy for them. Um, and they live in a turned on place. For a sexual, sex is a need. It's something that helps them to relax in life. It helps them feel like everything's good in the world. Whereas like for a sensual, they need to relax before they have sex. They need to get into that relaxed state of being before they're able to move into high arousal. Um, The next is kinky and kinky is someone who's turned on by the taboo. And there are different types of kinky people. So like sometimes you're dominant or submissive or you're turned on more by the psychology or you're turned on more by the sensation of it or both. So like my, my partner is turned on both by the sensations and the psychological aspects of what is taboo. And so that can be really fun to play with all these dynamics, which is one of the superpowers is that there's creativity in this blueprint that can go on. The toys, the tools, the things that are created, the the ways of playing, the scenarios, the scenes, like I could learn kink for the rest of my life and never have learned all of the different things that are within this. And I think one important thing for kinky is to know that it's what's taboo for you. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, I've had couples who I worked with who were married for 40 years and they had sex in the same position every Tuesday night. And it's, and they, they did that every, every year for 40 years because everything else was taboo. So they were kinky just because once they started to like step out, it was like, oh my gosh, we're doing these things that we shouldn't be doing. We're having sex in a different position. You know, like it, it was such a taboo for them that 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 was the excitement. The excitement turn on was in we're doing something that feels naughty or feels like it's taboo for us. The shadow side of that, of course, is the deep shame. Why do I like these things? Why do I need to do taboo things? Um, And that shame then can develop into deeper challenges, like something that then becomes like a fixated thing that I have to, I have to only have that. That's the only thing that can turn me on. And I'll, I'll say this in any relationship, anything that becomes, first you find out, oh, that worked. And then it becomes a pattern and then it becomes a rut 
and then it becomes a grave. So only having one pathway to pleasure, you know, can become a grave. You want to have lots of variety. And I think a lot of people who like kink love variety and really know how to play with that. But if they're in the shadow of it, they get into that rut that can become a grave for them. Then we have the final one, which is the shapeshifter. And the shapeshifter is someone who's turned on by all of these things. There's someone who likes it all, wants it all, wants it all for three hours, wants more hands, you know, like every toy in the toy toy box. Um, and I think shapeshifters get kind of a bad rap because it's like, oh, you're too complex. You want too much. And I say, no, it's not that. It's just you're very erotically sophisticated. You're someone who hasn't shut down aspects of your sexuality. They're still intact unless you're in the shadow. And if you're in the shadow, you're shutting down and you're shape-shifting to please your, your partner, you're shape-shifting to be what fits, and you're not fully fed. They're the most starving out of all the blueprints because a lot of other people don't necessarily have a fully developed full-spectrum sexuality of all of these blueprints being intact for them. So those are the five. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. So if people are interested in in figuring out where they fit in, um, they can go online and we'll, we'll put it in the notes and you guys can, can take the quiz. But the question that comes up for me around this is, you know, what if within a partnership, there is someone who is a sexual type and then someone else who is an energetic type? Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean there is a mismatch or an incompatibility? So I believe that sexual incompatibility is a bit of a myth. And the reason being is that we can learn. To me, these are like languages. It's like if I'm in love with someone who speaks Spanish, I'm going to learn Spanish. I'm going to learn their language. To me, this is a willingness issue, not a compatibility issue. Mm. The question is, am I willing to learn the skills to please my partner, even though it's not my blueprint? Am I willing to heal the shadow aspects of my my blueprint in order to be with my partner in the way that they need sexuality? So I don't see it so much as a sexual incompatibility. I see it more as the question of what are you willing to do to be in the relationship? Are you willing to learn your lover's language? And if you are, then I see complete shifts in in that it's just do you have the will and that's the number one thing mismatch that if we're going to label it a mismatch that i see is sexual and energetic usually someone has very high sexual in their in-depth quiz and someone has very low like my partner and i for example we weren't sexual energetic but um i was number one sexual and he was uh zero percent sexual and i was zero percent kinky and he was top kinky so we're complete wow. opposites, right? And I kept going, why does he want to have sex with me? And even last night we were laughing about it because I still initiate the sexual blueprint. We're like both on our phones and I and I don't even look up from my phone. I'm just like, you want to have sex tonight? And it's such a quintessential sexual thing. Like, I felt <laughs> right. sexual and I just say, let's have sex tonight. And, you know, and, he, and now he can laugh at it because he knows that I'm not like I'm coming from my blueprint and he's expanded now to be able to understand me and understand that that's just the way that I initiate sex versus him getting upset that like, oh, God, you know, here she is again. Blah, blah, blah. We don't have that dynamic anymore because both of us were willing to bridge 
And I even stopped and said, oh, I just initiated an into my sexual blueprint. And I said, let me do it over again and, and do more sensual or more, a little bit more kinky. Like I started with a fantasy instead. So I said, oh, like I just told him like a little fantasy in that moment instead of just initiating in the sexual because I'm willing to please him because I love him. I, this is somebody that I love and therefore wouldn't I want to learn their language? Yeah, well, I think this is what people don't know, they don't know. So this is where your work becomes so helpful is actually building that bridge. Um, and, you know, in the first couple episodes of the Sex, Love and Goop show, you expertly do this with this couple, uh, Erica and Damon. And, you know, when you're watching the introduction to the show, you're like, oh, my God, these this couple is doomed. <laughs> you know, they're just never, you know, just, you can tell just in their body language, you know, and in the interview, um, that they're just coming from a very different place. And I just don't, for me, it doesn't even seem like they know the pathway to each other. Right. So, right. um, so this is the work that you help, to facilitate, so can you describe that process a little bit of, you know, if you were to work with a couple or a, a partner, a partnership that was felt mismatched, how do you kind of open the aperture and help people connect and, and do what you did, become aware of like, whoa, this is a little too transactional right now, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think first it starts with, is there resistance? Uh, something you don't see in the Sex, Love, and Goop show is I worked with them before we actually got in person. And I yeah. worked through the resistance or the a lot of times people who are in a sexual blueprint or in uh, Damon's case, the masking with the sexual blueprint, which is which is kind of like, oh, it's other people's problem and it's not about me. It's really, they need to do the work. You know, like I hear that off very, very frequently, not always, but very frequently. And so then there's the, well, let's work on the part of you that's resistant to doing the work or working with the change or doesn't understand why this is important even, you know, cause I'll get mm -hmm. that too sometimes from sexual blueprints, which is, uh, I don't see why this is such a big deal. Why is this even important? Why do I even need to learn it? And I always go, well, your partner, your partner's coming to you saying, you know, yeah. like that, that right there is saying something. If your partner's coming to you saying, hey, I'd love to work on our sexuality together. I'd love to take this because there's more. There's always more in my, in my exploring the question of what is erotically possible. I have not come to the end of that exploration in 30 years of my lifetime. And there's always something more. If you want, if you want to, there's another possibility. And I don't say that because there's lack or you need to go into some seeking. I say that because it's fun to explore what is erotically possible. It's fun to see, well, what else after being married? You know, I've been with my partner 15 years and we're always discovering new things. And it's so exciting and amazing to have that love, deep love for myself, for him, for our relationship and for each other that we want to keep exploring. So that's the first step. The second step to bridging this is, is starting to learn how to feed, speak, heal, and expand the blueprints. So feeding is what are the activities that would actually feed my partner and learning those. This is all just learned skill. It's all just learned skill. 
And so if somebody's energetic, then, oh, maybe I want to take a class in Reiki or some kind of energy play or learn energy work or learn how to do light energetic touch on their body and breathe and have more awareness and presence because energetics crave presence. You know, so like those kinds of little things of how do I feed? Then how do I speak to somebody? What is the language? What is the verbal language, but not just the verbal, the vocal tone, the body language of that blueprint? I'm not going to speak to an energetic the same way that I'm going to speak to a sensual. You could even hear it a little bit when I was describing the blueprints when I started sensual, you know, like uh, I'll just make my voice just a little bit different (laughs) and a little bit more languid in the way that I'm speaking. And so there's that that piece as well. And then healing is he- your own work. Like how do I heal the shadow aspects of my blueprint? If, if it's the energetic blueprint, how, do, how am I able to not short circuit and go numb or dissociate when my genitals are being touched if I have a sexual partner? You know, like how do I do my own work in healing and going on my own sexual journey on my own? Not you know, sometimes I say couples, you got to go on your own journey before you can come back and then do the journey together in your own expansion, which leads me to the last one, which is expanding your blueprint. And if you do the in-depth quiz, you'll see what your secondary blueprint is. And often that's the easiest one to start to expand into, but it's reclaiming any part of your sexuality that you've disowned or that you've um, made bad or wrong and starting to then expand into new blueprint territory. And it's easiest to do that with whatever's your secondary, but sometimes with couples, I'll say, go ahead, because if there's a big bridge to gap, go ahead, let's work on your partner's primary blueprint. And that's what my partner and I did. I went and learned kink so that I could bridge that. He went and started doing things to develop his sexual, because that was a big part of him he disowned. It wasn't okay for him to be in the cock body that he was in and be sexual. He somewhere shut that down in his early teens because he wanted to be the good guy. You know, he didn't want to be the, the one of those guys. And so that was his work to heal the shadow aspect of of that. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny in the show, the couple that you work with, um, the gentleman, his name is is Damon, I believe, and um you know, his concept of orgasm is clearly ejaculatory, you know, right. <laughs> and that's, that's where he, he sees orgasm in that box. And, um, I think by episode two, and I, I don't want to ruin the show for people, so they should go watch it, but, um, you have him in a completely different blueprint and he has essentially, uh, like an energetic orgasm. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you, explain the different kinds of orgasms that are available to people. And then I suppose specifically, what is an energetic orgasm? Mm -hmm. So lots of different orgasmic possibilities. Uh, We have an event where I'll just put on the board, like what are all the orgasmic possibilities for different people? And um, one of the things that I did in my life was I wanted to have an orgasmic childbirth. I actually had my son up in Topanga and we did an orgasmic childbirth experience. And so like having my son born in that state versus a pain state was so profound. So there's one, um, <laughs> one orgasm right right that experience. <laughs> yeah. um, but so even just looking at like the clitoral structure and people who have vulvas, 
It's you could have an orgasm in the clitoral head, the shaft, the legs of the clitoris, which go deep inside the body. There's ones that roll through the whole structure of the clitoral um, organ. And so this piece of of what's possible. It's like, well, you could have vaginal orgasms. You can have ejaculatory orgasms in a vulva. You can have ejaculatory orgasms in a cock body. You can have ones that are non-ejaculatory orgasms, multiple orgasms, full body orgasms, energetic orgasms. I'll talk about what those are. Anywhere in your body, non-genital orgasms, um, laughgasms, crygasms. I can go mm -hmm. on and on and on of all the different kinds of orgasmic experiences. And I think the difference here is talking about climax. There's a climax, which I call, I'll call a genital sneeze. <laughs> right? There's that kind of orgasm as well. Nothing wrong with it. it, but it's different. And even the nerve innervation in our pelvic floor. So we have nerves that are more the excitable parts of our nervous system and nerves that are more parasympathetic aspects of our nervous system. So a cervical orgasm is going to feel different than a clitoral orgasm, but there, there are possibilities for orgasms in, throughout all of this. And then there's, so there's climax, there's orgasm, and then there's orgasmic state. There's living in a state, a perpetual state of aliveness, turn on, bliss, you know, not that that is something for us to chase. It's such a, I talked about it a little bit earlier. The orgasmic state to me is about being, being able to be with every experience and be in every experience without needing to run away from that experience. And even if you start to run away from the experience, then that is the experience. So like, it's a little bit of like a Zen, uh, a moment here, <laughs> yeah. right? which is like, can everything become orgasmic where I'm not running from any experience that I'm having and therefore it becomes orgasmic mm -hmm. because I'm no longer running from what I'm experiencing in the moment. I think that we have this misconception that like enlightenment or these these bliss states maintain bliss, but I love the quote, chop wood, carry water, get enlightened, chop wood, carry water. You know, it's like, it's, it is the life experience that becomes that. So energetic orgasm, it, defining that. An energetic orgasm is an orgasm that can happen throughout not touching, but can also happen from light touch on the body. And it is it is and can create a physical orgasm in the body, but it's done, it happens more in the energetic field. Usually I have people who are like, I had one in my root chakra or my heart chakra, you know, like through the actual energetic system, they're very aware of that happening. Um, it can shoot up the spine, kind of like a Kundalini experience. Uh, oftentimes it's accompanied with a lot of phenomena like shaking, jerking, breath changes, emotion can come with it. Um, and, and it's, sometimes it's, it's like hard to describe. It's like trying to describe one of these ecstatic experiences, right? If you've never experienced an orgasm, how do you describe an orgasm? <laughs> right? Right. I love that scene in the city of angels movie with Meg Ryan, where she's trying to describe a pear and the way that a pear tastes, you know, it's like, how do you describe that to someone who has no idea what sweet is? Yeah, well, we're trying to use symbols or, or concepts to describe a sensation or a feeling. Exactly. And we always come up short when we do that. You know, exactly. the poets, the poets poke at it from time to time, and <laughs> um, and the musicians get it from time to time because music can be very non-representational. It can be the thing that it is. If you think um, of it as vibration, you know, speaking of music, right? It's like. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's for me orgasm is like music it sometimes it's bass note and it's yeah. like a timpani boom 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 moving through the body and sometimes it's like an opera you know it's like and, and that's the vibration that's moving through the body, right? And and so for me, energetic orgasm has a lot of high note to it. It has a lot of that very fast frequency, very fast vibration that's moving through the body. And mm. instead of it moving out the body, so like an ejaculatory orgasm, it's like the there's all this energy and then it, poof, it goes out the body. An energetic orgasm moves through the body. Mm. Are energetic orgasms, sorry, energetic orgasms, um concomitant with tantric sex i mean that's sort of a confusing term for me maybe and you can help me unpack that a little bit because i think of tantra and or tantric sex as anything from eye gazing to semen retention mm -hmm. i mean um i actually read some old ancient uh buddhist tantric sutras and they were the kinkiest descriptions of group sex that I've ever read in my entire life. I mean, um, uh, so maybe you could spend a moment untangling the meaning of tantric sex. Yeah. There, so there are many different kinds of tantras and I think tantric sex has become sort of a Western uh, right. terminology, right? It's like, oh, Sting had sex for so many hours. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and never, yeah, never ejaculated. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he must I, be enlightened. Exactly. <laughs> if he can do that. <laughs> um, but there are many different kinds of tantras. You know, we can look at the tantra that I was part of, Ipsilu Tantra Kriya Yoga was part of that lineage is more of a pink tantra, which is very heart, like a lot, it has a lot of heart opening with the pelvic opening with, you know, opening up the third eye. So like there's these aspects that we're opening up. Then you can look at Agora Tantra, which would be like your kinky tantra. It's all the forbidden, you know, dark, energetic things, you know, that you're not supposed to do. And so we, we look at Agora and, and we've got like, we could look at the blueprints within Tantra, you know, Tantra is not just an energetic, unless you're going to go white Tantra. And then that's more of a meditative practice without so much of the physical aspect of sexuality, a meditation. You can look at Kashmiri Tantra, which I love, or Tantric Shivaism, um, which goes into a lot of more of a non-duality. Like we're doing all of this to take the polarities and merge the polarities into a oneness. And um, there are all these different practices and rituals to, to do that. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I was reading about this one that I think is called Yab Yum. Yep. Um, which I, I'm not sure if this is applicable, but in the show, you and Ian engage in a, sort of an energetic orgasm mutual experience mm -hmm. that seemed to be yab yum which is it essentially this one, of, one of them that we did was in in partnership and we were doing something called fire breath orgasm so yes very tantric yeah so it's kind of the the shiva base figure as kind of holding down the base and the soul or whatever and then the shakti energy on top of that, um, kind of in a Hindu version of the yin yang, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but it was, uh, 
I mean, first of all, kudos to you for doing that on camera. Um, it was amazing. It was my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> um, but like you said, it, you know, it, it's, it was almost the physical manifestation of the yin yang of kind of two energies, the sunny side of the mountain and the dark side of the mountain coming together and forming kind of unity out of polarity. It's just mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. We were doing yab yum and um, that's a traditional posture or pose that for lovemaking within the tantric tradition. And it does symbolize that it's the, the Shiva, the nothingness, the emptiness holding Shakti, the everythingness, the wild, you know, like the, that energy that's moving and swirling. And, and in that the two come into union and we're doing a breath for anybody who watches the show, we do a transmutation breath where we, we take those polarities and we bring them up the spine. And then when we exhale, we go into the, you'll see the shaking, the jerking, the sort of energetic orgasm. But what's happening in that moment is the polarities are combining mm -hmm. and we're coming into union. We're coming in. I don't talk about all that in the show, but that's definitely what, what my practice has been is the unification of these energies of the everything and the nothing coming into unification. So that is everything and nothing. It is stillness dancing. It is silence singing. Mm. Yeah. It's so interesting how, um, Eastern religions seem to be less blocked around, uh, at least in the Upanishads and the whole Buddhist canon and Hindu canon. Um, I actually found this very, very short poem. I want to just read it to you just for a second, because I, when I read it, it was right out of the, one of the Upanishads. Um, anyways, I have it written over here. A fire, that is what a woman is, Gautama. Her firewood is the vulva. Her smoke is the pubic hair. Her flame is the vagina. When one penetrates her, that is her embers, and her sparks are the climax. In that very fire, the gods offer semen, and from that offering springs a man. Mm. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is written in uh, you know, Hindu canon. Um, it was amazing just to come, come, come across it. Um, and if you look at a lot of these philosophies, there is the creation. Everything is created out of this, right? It is, um, if you look at Egyptian mythology, there's Atman and yeah. like his, his masturbation, his self-pleasure, I, I like the term self-pleasure, creates everything is the seed of his semen that creates everything. And so like we have these creation stories. It's so interesting that there's the other creation story, you know, the Adam right. and Eve and the, it's bad, wrong and all of the things that happen out of that creation story versus um, these creation stories that come from the ecstasy of orgasmic pleasure. Mm -hmm. And, and yes. how does a culture then view itself when it comes from the ecstasy of orgasmic pleasure and view sexuality versus, you know, it being bad, wrong, and you're tempted, and you know all of those things. It's just so fascinating to me how philosophy and sexuality intersect, and love philosophies and sexuality philosophies, and and where did that all originate? You know, like yeah. so interesting, and I could yeah. just go down whole rabbit holes. I know that's that. a whole. We'll we'll, <laughs> we'll cubby hole that for another episode. And it's also not to say that there aren't uh, obviously traditions of asceticism and renunciation 
Absolutely. And temperance within Eastern religion. There's a whole tradition of monasticism there and asceticism. So it's not just, of course, black and white, but I, I do think it is interesting and more exploratory uh, in the East. So one, one question that I, I really wanted to ask you before our time is up is, um, so I have three daughters. There's three teenagers. My littlest one is 12, but she's seemingly very much a teenager. And, um, you know, I, I have a lot of concerns about the proliferation of pornography. And I wanted to get your um, viewpoint on pornography and whether or not you think sort of this ability to access every imaginable kink at a moment's notice in the palm of your hand is desensitizing young people and essentially just making the extreme normative? Yeah, I think that like talking to your children about drugs or talking to your children about sex, I think it's important to give context to pornography. They're going to come across it. And and one of the things that I've seen in my practice is these early images that people see often shape sexuality. And so how do you talk to your teens about what they may see? Because most Mm -hmm. likely they're going to come across it. And I think that's an important conversation is let's put this in context. Let's talk about sexuality because it's when it's not talked about and then they see it, that it becomes an imprint. Do you have any tips for dad (laughs) without it being like, ew, dad, gross, get out of here. Um, The thing that I'll often, you know, it's, it's what's appropriate for them and what are the questions they're asking. So it's making myself available for, for their questions, as opposed to be imposing on what I think that they should know or what's appropriate for them. It's more like they're asking this question. So now they're ready for a response that is age appropriate. Um, Books are fantastic. Um, There is a website that I recommend called Scarlet Teen that is all about preparing teens for sexuality. That is a resource that I'll often give parents to just take a look at Scarlet Teen. And, um, and making it so that it's not uncomfortable, you have to be comfortable in your own body because they sense that discomfort, right? They, they see you blushing. They sense your discomfort. It's like the more you do your own work on your sexuality, I think it helps your, your kids, right? It's like, I'm comfortable, so therefore it's not a big deal to talk about. And it doesn't become such an embarrassing thing because I'm not. I'm just comfortable with, I'm available. I'm here for you. And there are some things I want you to know as you move into your sexuality and your sexual years, the things that I would want you to know is you're going to come across pornography. You might be offered drugs at a party. You might, you know, like what are those things that you put into place that they know that they can come to you as a safe haven Mm -hmm. for that and having those discussions. I try not to make anything bad wrong because the moment you make it bad wrong, they want, they often, they want to go do this, look at the thing, right? It's like the conversation is more of, this is what may occur. This is what you may come across. This is what, and, and here's what I would like you to know about it. Yeah. I guess my worry is that 
kind of old fashioned <laughs> sensual love making will um will be kind of out of style or not provide enough titillation, if you will, um, just because, you know, extreme kink has become the norm. Um, and I've read some articles about that, um, which are somewhat disturbing. So I think it's a concern, you know, I think it is a concern, especially as we become more polarized, especially as there's more access to things online and on the internet and teaching your daughter's consent, Mm -hmm. teaching them how to own their own body and be empowered in their body, teaching them that their desires are okay. This empowerment is the best preventative. This empowerment and education is the best preventative. Nice. That is great advice right there. Um, Jaya, can you tell us about some of the resources and counseling and masterclasses uh, that you offer to help people cultivate greater intimacy in their lives? Yeah, the first step would be go take the quiz. And that's the first way to get involved in learning. And then we have an in-depth quiz and then just a regular one that just gives you one blueprint. But the in-depth quiz will give you all the percentage of your blueprints so you get a big picture of it all. Um, And then we have, there are a number of blueprint coaches that are out in the world. So if you want to go deeper and get somebody to coach you through, if you feel like you just really need help with that, um, I think it's important to educate people that, you know, you have a health coach, you have a fitness coach, you can get a sexuality and relationship coach as well. Like there's no shame in that. And um, they're all trained to help you go through the blueprint, erotic blueprints and learn how to feed, speak and heal that. We also have an online course on the erotic blueprints that you can get involved with in a whole community. Um, we have something called Erotic Freedom Club that is is just a community of people who are talking about these things and asking these questions like you just ask about. How do we talk to our children about this? And what about these issues that are arising? And, and so it's a great forum and a great community. We do some live events as well. Um, and then I take one or two um, clients a year, and I'm already booked out a few years now. So, um, But that that is also available. Nice. Well, I'm so appreciative of your work and helping us to have this conversation out in the open. Um, And I think just with all of the issues that confront us, really conversation is the thing that stands between us and the world that our hearts know is possible. Um, and, And you're really on the front lines facilitating those conversations and you're doing it with vibrancy and vivacity and so much uh so much grace so um i'm really grateful to have had this time to to get to know you and to meet you and to get to know your work so thanks Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jaya. To keep abreast of her work and to take the quiz, visit her website at missjaya.com. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort 
we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where the first 15 minutes are just ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts here, the best way is to subscribe to the Commune course platform. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, I'm here any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com if you have suggestions or questions. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week after week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Frett, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, You'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for Commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG.